Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. On May the 2nd, 2022, a Monday, it's going to be quite a week. It's Kentucky Derby week, and we're going to be talking uh, Kentucky, although not horse racing, but music. We've done a number of different shows on music um, in the not-too-distant past. We did one last month with Matty Friedman, the Canadian-Israeli writer, about Leonard Cohen's concert in the Sinai Desert in 1973, built on an interesting new book, actually a wonderfully uh, engaging new book by Friedman called Who by Fire, Leonard Cohen in the, the Sinai. We've also done a number of shows about songwriting. We had uh, Mary uh, Galthier, for example, on um, the show talking about her book about songwriting as a form of healing, Saved by a Song, The Art and Healing Power of Songwriting. We tend to assume that songs and songwriting in a, in a Leonard Cohen-style manner are designed for peace, for healing, although the Cohen story uh, is one of war. Uh, and the song and the music that we're talking about today, associated with the Kentucky Derby, is interestingly complex, multi-layered, as uh, the Kentucky story and the whole Southern story is. Uh, the name of the book is my Old Kentucky Home, The Astonishing Life and Reckoning of an Iconic American Song. It's by Emily Bingham, who will be, who is speaking to us from her sleeping porch in Louisville, um, Kentucky. And uh, I'm thrilled, uh, Emily, that you're joining us. I have to admit that I'm not a big horse racing fan. Uh, so I didn't actually understand the significance of my old Kentucky home in terms of the Kentucky Derby, but it's essentially an anthem of the race. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, there are all these, there's sort of a, 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 a pile of traditions surrounding the Kentucky Derby, and the one that comes at the apex of emotional um, you know, excitement, just as the horses, you've been waiting weeks, days, whatever, for the horses and hours in your hat and, you know, derby outfit for the horses to come out on the track. And as they step onto the dirt um, and head to the starting gate, the marching band strikes up and plays this really old song from 1853 um, called My Old Kentucky Home. And it's, it's, it's a very sentimental anthem and people right and left um, uh, start to start to cry and sing along. It's one of the only songs we have that is sung in that sort of mass manner. Uh, you can think of the national anthem or take me out to the ballpark, but this one um, has a different history from those and, and it's at a sporting event. Yeah, I was um, doing a little bit of research this morning and I noted that John Prine has a very popular My Old Kentucky Home uh, online, and, and so does Johnny Cash. Um, we tend to assume that popular songs are progressive or liberal somehow, but 
you suggest, and perhaps correct me if I'm wrong, you, you suggest that uh, my old Kentucky home has been misunderstood. It, it's not as quite as anti-slavery as some people believe. Is that fair? Yes, I don't um, agree with that approach to the song. Um, I think that, um, you know, I'm an historian, so I come at it from looking at how a song you know, what it came out of, the culture it emerged from, and then also how this song has been used, performed, deployed, um, how, what, what, what kind of associations it has been, um, you know, brought into to help represent or promote. So for instance, My Old Kentucky Home isn't just a song, it's also a uh, tourist attraction that millions of people have gone to over the years. It is also, uh, the state song of Kentucky. Um, it's also a song that was sung all over the world and promoted as an all-American thing in uh, in the 19th, the middle of the 20th century, when um, you know globe, America's global power was being stretched across uh, across the world after World War II. So. It, it's it's not just the Kentucky Derby, um, and it's certainly not just the South. I yeah, think I knew uh, you have this amazing sure. um, the introduction of the book. Your your father was in uh, on the uh, in Japan after the war, national service, and he heard it. So it's clearly a globalized song. Let's return though, Emily, to 1852. Um, the song is written by a man called Stephen. Uh, Collins Foster. Tell me a little bit about him and your interpretation of the foundation of this song. Right. So um, Stephen Foster was born in the 1820s in an industrializing Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania to middle, middle class parents um, in a large family that had a lot of economic ups and downs. And he was not one of the kids who buckled down to work the way his family wished he would. And instead he just always really cared about music. And even as a little kid, he performed in a blackface minstrel show that he and his friends, you know, organized in the alleyway behind someone's house and collected, you know, uh, tickets and used their money to go spend down in town. But he uh, Emily, let me, I, I get into trouble sometimes for interrupting, but I do need to jump in here. You say a black-faced minstrel. Explain, because not everyone is as familiar as you are with the early 19th century cultural history of the South. What did that mean and what did that symbolize and what should it symbolize to us early, 20, uh, early 21st century uh, folk? Yeah. So this is one of the things that I first had to truly delve into as I undertook the project. And I will say I... It was not a particularly pleasant um, task, so I really appreciate you stopping me there. Most Americans don't know much about black-faced minstrelsy, except that you're not supposed to do it. And we should understand better what it was. Um, it was a form of entertainment that became popular in the 1830s and even more in the 1840s when, when Stevie Foster was a teenager and started writing his own songs. And it was really the first um, cultural, original cultural export of this country, a nation that was still very young, that was still seen as sort of copycatting 
um, its, you know, founding English, you know, uh, antecedents. And, um, and this was a form of performance that in which white people wrote music that and colored their skin black and danced and sang and performed and played instruments that purported to be representing and also often making fun of um, black life, black people, black life, black experience. Who were at this point, of course, the institution of slavery still existed. How, how much of the music was appropriated from uh, black slaves? So musicologists have been debating this and, and researching this a, a great deal, but the consensus is that it was musically, there was a lot that was um, really just Anglo-Irish music, and but the theme and the black faceness and the costuming, and eventually as these shows got more elaborate, the settings, these sort of plantation scenes and dances and obviously the themes, were all about black people and sometimes about free black people too. There was a whole set of blackface minstrel stereotype characters that were based on, you know, laughable, um, violent, um, stupid, uh, vain black uh, freed people. But this was really important, Andrew. This started in the North. This was not something that slave owners uh, created. It was created in urban centers of the North by free white people um, to entertain other free white people. And it was, there's a great line, I was thinking about you with your British background. Um, William Makepeace Thackeray uh, went to a minstrel show in the United States and said he'd just seen nothing like it, nothing that was so absolutely moving and entertaining. At the same time, he said, it, 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 nothing gave such a sense of happy pity as watching these people, you know, cavort and sing and play their instruments. And part of it was that the, the, the music was interesting, the instruments were interesting, and that was the most African thing about the music was using the banjo, which has African roots and to some degrees possibly bones as rhythm, you know, as a rhythm section. Uh, Emily, it goes without saying that um that this is offensive to us i don't think anyone's going to debate that but what about at the time was there a debate about whether or not white people should be dressing up as black and um and and and, and singing as if they were black no um i mean there was a bit of a sense that this kind of entertainment began in bar rooms and and you know saloons and was maybe slightly low class but so there was a bit of a high low issue but that was pretty well resolved by the 1850s when the shows got so elaborated and they became the the the, the genre became so popular where kings and queens and presidents and you know potentates all over the world were getting treated to these kinds of shows that people pretty much accepted that this really was kind of a great American thing. And that, um, you know, the only thing was, you know, some people maybe thought that it was a little bit mean to some black people. Certainly black people didn't like it. Um, but on the uh, other how hand, do you know? well, because someone like Frederick Douglass says, you know, these are people who are making her taking the one thing that they 
that, that we have that they don't and making money and making fun off of it. So let's go back to Stephen Collins Foster. He wasn't, as you suggest, he wasn't particularly unusual in this black, blackface um, music and, and culture. Why does that, uh, so to speak, color him in your in your mind in terms of why he wrote this song? So, I mean, I don't blame Stephen Foster <laughs> for anything personally. Um, you know, he was a man of his time and he was also trying extremely hard to make his way as a professional songwriter. That was a courageous thing to do because nobody had ever tried. There was really something that was looked down upon socially and also that was extremely difficult financially. But what he had learned in his career by the time he wrote My Old Kentucky Home was that even though he liked to write other kinds of songs, he couldn't make any money off them. And the money that he did make came from a handful of very popular songs that were taken up by professional blackface minstrel groups. And that, and that was how they were popularized because these groups toured from town to town to town, went all the way to California where you are in 1848, taking his song, Oh, oh Susanna. Um, and then, um, and then, you know, around the country. So that was how he could get it in the ears of people to then want to buy sheet music. So that's what he was doing. He needed to make some money. He was in debt. He had a child, um, you know, he had a wife who was having to live, they were having to live with his parents. Um, this wasn't ideal. And so he, he reads or maybe just hears about, um, I think you put it up on the screen, um, the very, very popular novel of the day, Uncle Tom's Cabin. And he writes a song called Old Uncle Tom Goodnight. And it follows the basic trajectory of that novel in which a man enslaved in Kentucky is um, because of, well, it's not clear in the song, but I mean, in the book. Uh, let's just be clear here. Um... Uh, Emily, uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. It's an anti-slavery book, right? Absolutely. Yes, Harriet Beecher Stowe has witnessed the horrors of slavery and decided to sit down and write a book that will expose them to a, um, to a wide audience because she wants more people in her country to be motivated to act against slavery. Stephen Foster did not, was not an abolitionist and did not sit down and write a song to get people to get up and act about slavery because he was writing this for an, an audience. That, well, first of all, that he, he watered down the entire story and made it mostly about, uh, you know, primarily, you know, starts out with this scene in a happy plantation life in Kentucky and he neuters the actual sale of the man from his family Breaking, breaking up a family, the same process that broke millions of hearts and is our national atrocity, um, by just saying hard times came. It wasn't, it wasn't anything about oh, an owner's silly, you know, uh, gambling debts or, you know, overextending his his credit as it is in Harriet Beecher Stowe. Um, it is just, it is just hard times come and oh well, someone had the the D word. So the song is has every verse has the word that is now not 
no, I can't say it, but I call it the D word. You may say it. Um, that explains that this is about a, a, a black man, an enslaved person. And it says, you know, the, the, the D's have to part and go down river and they're uh, everywhere they go, the back will have to bow um, or the head will have to bow and the back will have to bend because that's what it means to be black. And you could say, you know, this is, um, you know, does at some level say, well, this is sad, right? But it does not call to action the way Harriet Beecher Stowe did. And it also turns on, it turns the figure into this, um, into this very passive person who's just sent away to then die in the sugarcane fields, never to see his family again. Um, this isn't what Harriet Beecher Stowe's character is like. He is a paragon of moral and spiritual, um, you know, strength, and th that 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 is not conveyed. And so this is watered down so it can be more entertaining, and yet also be, you know, taken that way if you want. But that is not how it was taken chiefly. And if you look at the way, you know, I can tell you today that when people stand up and link arms and sway side to side to my old Kentucky home, they are not thinking about anti-slavery. They are not thinking about the- Well, I mean, Johnny, Johnny Cash is, and so is John Prine. I mean, these are people clearly on the left. So there are people who interpret the song as a progressive work. Is that well, fair, Amy? Well, I think there's an evolution that goes on in the 20th century where once um, the word um, that, you know, designates you know, the slur against, you know, racial slur is, is eliminated from the song. I think there's a great deal of hope among many people that, it, you know, this is universal. I mean, this is part, partly what Foster was brilliant at. He was able to, you know, take, use his musical and lyrical slate of hand to sort of universalize, right? Um, the tragedy of being separated from home, right? And many of us have felt that, right? Homesickness um, is something that, you know, is, 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 is felt by everybody's had that experience who's ever left home at some, at some point, right? And yet he, this is literally white folks experiencing their own pain on something that I think we need to think about. Do we want to take the pain of this atrocity, which we are now in a point of thinking about a lot more clearly, I think, even than in the 70s and 80s when great singers were interpreting it, um, you know, and, and, and using that as our base. I, I, I think it's important to look back and see where the root of this really is. And, and, you know, the middle of the story that we haven't talked about yet, but it's really about the Jim Crow era when the song becomes you know, adopted as part of the um, plantation mythology and celebration uh, of uh, that that really swept America. You just think "Gone with the Wind" as one. Yeah, you, you know, mentioned that at the beginning, example. and um, it's very much. You know, there is even a home called my Kentucky home, the 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 mansion. I was just I haven't been there, but looking at the photos and the the marketing. There's something very white about it. I don't see a lot of references to African Americans in it. No, I mean that was a a plantation house that 
was designated 100 years ago as a, a, a good choice to um, attract, you know, to, to build a, a site that would attract, um, or not build, but open a site, uh, a historic site that would attract millions of, of visitors. And Kentucky's a poor state, and they needed something that would make people want to come here. And the reason it was so attractive is not because people wanted to come learn about slavery and feel sorry for people who are suffering under Jim Crow segregation. They wanted to feel, you know, they were seeing into a gracious history um, that, that was bygone and get to walk through these, you know, the halls of this house. That, so so you know, are you suggesting that that Jim Crow romanticism or the, the romanticism that arose in the Jim Crow era about the gracious South and these beautiful homes and, and all this romanticism, that it's, if not pro-slavery, certainly implicitly racist. It, it saw charm in a past that had, you know, was laced with brutality and that More was than lace, story. Emily. I lace. mean, it was it defined was, by brutality, right? Defined by brutality. And, it, you know, in Kentucky's case, there was this, you know, if we were going to talk about, I mean, you know, here, here's what, here's, you know, in the 1920s, there were people calling my old Kentucky home the happy home of slavery. They, a, a man from Scotland was writing about this song as a, a song that expressed um, a story about a happy home that can never be destroyed. This is literally the opposite of what the song, you know, if you want it to be abolitionist, is about, which is about the destruction of a home. So I think it becomes about the white home that has been lost or destroyed at some point, and whether that's by the Civil War or just by hard times, um, it's it's no longer it's it's no longer about the experience of slavery and that destruction. It is about looking back at a time when things were uh, perhaps stable in a way that they are now. In a funny way, it's a return to the, the blackface culture that Stephen Collins Foster involved in. It's, it's really got nothing to do with black people. It's a white song for white people. Yeah, I, I, I at one point say in the book that I believe this song is white America's um, melody to itself. It's a soothing song that is extremely emotional, and yet the emotion is not about what the song is purporting to be about. And that's why this is so interesting, Andrew. It's complicated to talk about, and I hope I'm not, you know, confusing your listeners or viewers too much. But that America's story with race is not simple. It yeah, is not good, uh, well, I want my listeners to be confused by this sort of thing. Um, so, so Emily, what are we going to do here? I mean, the as I said, the um, uh, the Kentucky Derby is coming up at the end of the week again. This sort of romantic imagery of pictures of flowers and all the rest of it in May in Kentucky, very romantic. Should we just give? I mean, this touches on so many of the broader cultural conversations in America today. Should we just give the song up? Should it come with a caveat, with a warning? Do we need to change the lyrics? What's your sense of what we should do in terms of my old Kentucky home? You're sitting on your porch in Louisville, probably not too far from, 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 from the track. 
Um, sh should we end this tradition? Um, I have a different answer. I, 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 I know that this culture, well, we all like to have simple answers, right? We would like to push a button, which is why we like to delete emails um, and feel that we've done something. And I, 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 I don't think, um, I don't think that simply, my simply saying this should go away tomorrow, even if I could make, make it so, is, is a, a very appropriate or effective way to go about. We are in a moment, and you refer to the, 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 the conversations that are going on around race and equity in our society. I think we need to sit with this. I would like people to simply look at the full lyrics of this song and maybe listen to the, uh, maybe you'll link them to the, the SoundCloud where I, I, I offer people the chance to listen to the song in its full lyrics as well. And think about where this came from and how it became so celebratory. Why is it happening in spaces that are, um, that are about um, excitement or even uh, patriotism like, like the state legislature. I mean, this is our state song as well. And Churchill Downs, if they wanted, could put this song away tomorrow. They have many, many reasons not to want to do that because it is so embedded into their tradition. The state of Kentucky will have to have a long conversation about this. You don't just, you know, get legislators, legislators to um, vote on a uh, prized tradition. Mitch McConnell himself has you know, advised that it would be madness to let go of something so wonderful as this, this particular piece of our cultural inheritance. But I think that we should sit with it. I sat with it for years, Andrew. I, I, I used to sing it to my children before I knew its antecedents fully. Um, I began to feel uncomfortable about that for a little while. I even sang it with the slur um, because I thought, oh, that's better. I'll just be really honest. I want them to know. And that didn't feel good after a while. For me, I can't sing it anymore. That, it, is, it is not something I can do. But I don't expect people to turn on a dime just because Emily Bingham <laughs> wrote a book. I would, like, I would like them to think about what who this who this hurts and how it feels to be a person whether in kentucky or somewhere else where people are you know celebrating this artifact not knowing probably what it is so there are people who do but most people are not aware when it is about this just terribly vicious time in our culture that we are just coming to grips to Emily, in a funny way, we've done some shows about the issue of statues and bringing down the statues of Civil War generals and racists. It's similar, but in a, in a cultural context, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it, you live in California. There's going to be a big show in 2024, an art exhibit of, of Confederate, mostly Confederate monuments that have been removed over the last you know, 10 or 15 years. And, um, and it's going to be in L.A. Mocha. And one of the statues that's going to be there is, is a statue of Stephen Foster. Um, it's the only one that's of a cultural creator. And the reason that statue was taken down has a largely, very largely to do with the composition of the statue, which has a minstrelized, stereotyped Black man at Foster's feet 
playing the banjo while Foster sits high above him writing his music. And the, it just is very painful to look at, at for, for, for us today. So the city of Pittsburgh held many forums and hearings and their public art you know, committee to decide what to do with a statue that had, had been protested for years and ultimately made the decision to remove it. And so I think, you know, I think of this song as a way for us to think about the cultural monuments, not just the political people and figures, but, uh, and I call it a, a sonic monument to a segregated memory because it promotes a vision of the past that only appeals to and makes sense to part of the population and violates the memory of another part of the population. And we're trying to be more united in our memory, I think, as a, as a nation. Yeah, some people might say, Emily, well, it's all very well. Um, you're, of course, you're right. But all we can do is, is move forward. This year's Kentucky Derby to a couple of younger musicians are being spotlighted. One of them is young African-American singer, uh, Britney Spencer will be singing the national anthem. Some people might say, well, we're trying to move forward. It's obviously a painful, complicated history, but rather than going back and arguing over something as complicated as, as this old song, let's just move forward. How would you respond to that? Um, I'm an historian and I know you can't just move forward. I think moving forward with the kind of intention of um, of making the Derby and you know any part of our culture more hospitable and respectful to all people is great. But if we don't know why we're doing that and what has come before, I think it, 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 it's hollow, Andrew. It doesn't make sense fully. We have to, you know, know what, what we're doing and why we're doing it. It's not just something you, you know, you do and say you've checked a box. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's incredibly complicated. And I think it's a, a very important conversation that you're starting. My Old Kentucky Home, The Astonishing Life and Wrecking of an Iconic American Song. This song is, is, is particularly uh, important to, to you, Emily. So I think it must have been in some ways, a rather painful book to write. Is that fair? It was pretty painful and happening, you know, as I say, digging into the archive of American blackface performance and also the black artists who struggled to, you know, break out of the requirements that they literally sing these same songs that white men in blackface created and popularized. And then once, you know, black people were allowed to be on stage, their white management and showrunners said, now you get up and sing those songs. And that went on for generations, um, a couple, at least a couple of generations in this country. So I, I, I'm, I, the part, there were many bright spots, but that was pretty grim. Um, bright spots, including, you know, some black artists who found remarkable ways around it, who also tried to deploy it to their benefit, starting, you know, with even Frederick Douglass, but going to someone like an unknown mm -hmm. radical person named Henrietta Vinton Davis, who wrote an entire play called Our Old Kentucky Home, in which Black people win the Civil War, 
Um, they come, they're, they're enslaved in Kentucky. They, 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 this couple wins the civil war through, you know, joining the army and working as spies and, uh, and guerrillas and cross-dressing and all of this stuff, and then come back and buy the plantation at which they had been enslaved and abused um, and start their own Kentucky home. And they sing the song as a, um, as a way to show that there is a, a new day. Um, that's fascinating. I mean, I would also like to see if, you know, you asked me what should happen. You know, I do feel like the continuing, I do feel very strongly that the continuing reproduction of this song um, in spaces that are controlled by white people, which includes Churchill Downs um, and includes the legislature of Kentucky, um, is a racist act. I do think it is wrong to keep doing it, but I don't expect it to turn on a dime because I think people need to digest. Well, we have much to digest in Emily Bingham's new book, My Old Kentucky Home, The Astonishing Life and Reckoning of a iconic American song. It's the afterlife, I guess, that's the most important thing, most interesting thing. Congratulations, Emily, on the book. What what else should people be reading during um, uh, the, the Derby Week in first week of May 2022? Anything else? Oh, wow. Oh, I, connecting to the Derby. Well, there's a terrific uh, collection of poems about one of the great Black writers, um, Isaac Murphy, who was absolutely, you know, a, a you know champion athlete of the of the 19th century and then was you know run off in Jim Crow era America off of his profession um, that's by Frank X Walker it's called I dedicate this ride um, I've been reading a terrific book about black performance in this country and what's expected of and what it has taken um, from our, our fellow black Citizens and the brilliance of it as well by Hanif Abdurraqib. It's called A Little Devil in America. Highly recommend that. Um, and yeah, I mean, please just take two minutes and read Stephen Foster's composition and listen to it. That will take you just a few moments. And finally, Emily Bingham, the author of My Old Kentucky Home, who's who runs the world. Uh, in the Kentucky Derby Week, uh, May 2022. Who's in charge? Well, did you know that Donald Trump is coming to the Derby this year? Um, I hope he doesn't run the world, but he certainly thinks he does. And he um, has invited, or his, his uh, PAC has invited um, anyone who can pay $75,000 to join him to watch the running of the roses, run for the roses and listen to my old Kentucky home as part of the package. But